0: Hey, it's Kathy. This week, we're sharing an episode from the show Shoes Off, a podcast about Asian-Australian culture, hosted by Jay Uwe. The episode that we're featuring is called Bharatanatyam, Project Cast, and it's about how power and status, and in particular, caste, enable art forms to be co-opted. You may remember our previous episode, Pull Up the Roots, where we shared Preeti and Trinity's stories about the significance of their Arangetrams. In that episode, they note that our and g are not just a connection to heritage and culture, but also a marker of class and privilege, something that today's episode takes a closer look at. We're linking to Shoes Off's website in the show notes, so please check them out wherever you listen to podcasts. And learn more about the show at ShoesOff.net. Okay, here's Bharatanatyam, Project Cast.
1: As far as I can remember, Bharatanatyam has always been there since very early time. When my cousin was performing her Arangetram in Melbourne, uh, I was a two-year-old boy, and my mother and father were very nervous about sitting in this grand hall with all the pomp and ceremony and trying to keep a young baby quiet. But apparently I sat on her lap like a doll and watched the whole thing. And my mum always says that I have always had this affinity for Bharatanatyam and Carnatic music.
2: Bharatanatyam has become a touch point for many South Asian children looking to connect with their tradition and culture.
3: Um, And then here I was in a dance studio with all these really unfamiliar sounds and smells and was told, this is your culture.
2: But when this dance form is learned to connect with tradition and culture, whose tradition and culture is it?
1: I think, however, it feels like just a long ingrained understanding of it being a 2,000-year-old art form, that it was apparently revived in the early 20th century into the art form that we today know as Bharatanatyam. What is the history?
3: I don't think I did ever hear about the history of the art form.
1: Who holds
2: the power in propagating Bharatanatyam? Why do they hold the power? And who's being erased in the process?
3: I, I believe that Project Bharatanatyam, or Project Reinvention of Bharatanatyam, is actually Project Cast.
2: Hello and welcome to Shoes Off, stories about Asian Australian culture. I'm Jay Ui.
0: Yeah, nice try. That's actually Tanesh Thile, my best friend, my rock, my inspiration, the reason I live. And I'm saying all this because you wrote this script, didn't you?
2: Look, it's pretty great, you have to admit.
0: It's pretty good, actually. And you're taking the reins for the episode today. How am I doing? You are doing amazing. So, T, what
2: are we talking about today? Caste discrimination is one of those things that you can only understand if you've lived it. In this episode, we explore how power and status, and in particular caste, enables art forms from marginalized communities to be co-opted. And we see how caste plays out in the diaspora through a style of dance called Bharatanatyam.
3: I believe that Project Bharatanatyam, or Project Reinvention of Bharatanatyam, is actually Project Caste.
2: This is Nritya Pillay a dancer from the Issevalala community, the exact community that Bharatanatyam comes from. She's an educator and activist who speaks about the history of Bharatanatyam.
0: What's the deal with her referring to it as Project Bharatanatyam?
2: So, Bharatanatyam in its current form didn't just materialize out of nothing. There were particular political and social objectives involved to create the art form in its form today. Even the name Bharatanatyam was previously used interchangeably with sadir, amongst other terms. However, there was a deliberate decision in the 1930s to rebrand this art form as Bharatanatyam because of the word's affinity to Sanskrit and Brahmanism. This fit into a larger narrative of a unified, single, Indian identity to facilitate seeking independence from the British. That's why it's a project, because it's trying to achieve a very particular purpose.
0: So Project Bharatanatyam is all of these forces behind it, and all of the objectives that come with its reinvention.
3: And why do I say that? Because in establishing this access to everybody else the access to the hereditary community has been denied we have actively erased the contributions of the hereditary community to create this new history for this art form and create new carriers for this art form a new set of performers, uh, predominantly upper-caste, upper-class women, were uh, encouraged to take part and uh, provided access to this art form.
2: So now, what we think of when we think Bharatanatyam is actually being taught in the appropriate upper-caste format. Right, and
0: the Bharatanatyam that a lot of my South Asian friends learn is from these upper-caste teachers who then brought it to Australia. But how did Bharatanatyam get so popular?
2: So to fully understand its popularity, we need to do a bit of history. The version of Bharatanatyam that we know today used to be called Sadir, and it's a bit different from the way we know it now. It was a sensual form of dance, performed exclusively by some women from certain courtesan castes, like the Issevalala women.
0: Ah, that's the community that Noorthia is from. But who are these Issevalala women?
2: This is a particular matrilineal caste from the Tamil nadu Thanjavur region in India, They had the practice of marking or selecting some women to live a life dedicated to the arts, with, shall we say, unconventional sexuality for the time. Whilst this selection practice was in some ways oppressive and tied to a caste framework, these women did not need to submit to the patriarchal norms of marriage. Many of these women were respected as repositories of art and were women of high culture. They danced and sang in temples, courts, and public spaces.
0: Right, so these Isevilala women were quite well respected and had a form of dance that was their own called Siddhir,
2: which we now call Bharatanatyam. But once the British arrived in India, their social status started to change and their dance form wasn't held in the same high regard. This was because once Victorian ideas of morality entered colonised India, it infiltrated the minds of the people living there. Isai women, their art and their unconventional sexuality came under severe scrutiny. I
0: was wondering when the British would arrive to make
2: things worse. They always do. And as a result of the British influence, powerful upper caste Indians also started to change their views. There was a political campaign against the courtesan community's supposed immorality. With all of this happening, their social status started to wane to the point that they were referred to as Devadasi. Now this word meant servant to God, but the term Devadasi was used to gloss over many communities from different caste locations and to brand these women as prostitutes. Now, pretty much all women who did not behave the way the British thought they should behave, like the Isevalala women, were looked down upon and stigmatised.
0: So, because of colonial British influence, the Issevalala community were painted and seen as immoral, and so they became stigmatized as devadasi.
2: Yeah. This eventually led to legislation that meant that they could no longer practice their art and perform it, which meant that they had no source of income. Because of this, many were forced into sex work as a way to make ends meet, which furthered this perception of isevalalar women as immoral. This is partly why isevalalar is a preferred term now by many from the community, rather than devadasi. The term isevalalar was a deliberate political move of self-identification, and a rejection of the slur and stigma of the word devadasi.
0: Right, so these women who danced sadir went from being quite well-respected to being ostracized in mainstream society and stripped of one of their sources of income, which was dancing sadir.
2: Enter Rukmini Devi Arundel. In 1929, Rukmini, an upper-caste high-status woman from India, traveled to Australia and met the great Russian ballerina Anna Pavlova. This sparked an interest in dance, and with a few ballet moves under her belt, Rukmini Devi returned to India, where she became interested in this hereditary art form. She's often credited for the coinage of the term Bharatanatyam, along with E. Krishna Ayer and V. Raghavan, all highly influential Brahmin cultural nationalists, even though there's proof that the term Bharatanatyam was in usage in the courtesan communities much earlier. Subsequently, Rukmini Devi established the International Academy of the Arts, where students, namely from upper caste Hindu backgrounds, could come and learn various art forms, including Bharatanatyam.
0: Right, so Rukmini Devi and her peers stumble upon Sadir, choose to call it Bharatanatyam, and are then kind of seen as the founders of modern day Bharatanatyam. And this is the same Bharatanatyam that a lot of my South Asian friends now practice, right?
2: Most likely. And as a result, Rukmini Devi became one of the few faces of Bharatanatyam on the global stage, she became one of the most influential people who is credited for the revival and resuscitation of Bharatanatyam and its present elite status. So,
0: while Issevalala women were being legally prevented from practicing Bharatanatyam, which originates in their community, a high status woman with better resources learns this art form teaches it to others, and gets the shiny medal. And then my friends here in Sydney, who then learn this style of dance, essentially credit Rukmini Devi. This sounds a little like cultural appropriation, but with no white people involved.
2: Yeah, so cultural appropriation occurs where members of a dominant culture take elements from a culture or people who have been systematically oppressed by that dominant group. This appropriation is all about power dynamics, but... It doesn't always come from a power dynamic relating to race or class or sexuality. It's also important to note that appropriation is not always a one-time act. It's not just a whitewash history of dance, but also denying opportunities to hereditary dancers, belittling them for their skills not being classical enough, dressing up as a Devadasi to perform on stage, or playing a Devadasi role without consultation or inclusion in the process.
0: So what makes someone upper-caste? Actually, let's take a step back. What exactly is caste?
2: Here's Murat Vias explaining what caste is. He's a researcher at Monash University who focuses on the anti-caste movement.
4: So let's assume that caste is a basis of discrimination, like race, but it's not dependent on your skin color. It is instead dependent on what family you're born in, uh, what name you're born with, what your ancestor's caste was. So yeah, it's basically accident of birth. Like in ancient times it assigned you a certain occupation and you couldn't break those caste boundaries of occupation and there was certain stigma that came with being born in a certain caste.
0: So how are
4: these castes divided? To begin with, there were four divisions, or the Verna's, uh, the people who were the oppressors are at the top, which is my community, that call themselves the Brahmins. They make up about 3% of the population right now in India. They are the priest class, or the priest caste.
0: So, right up the top of the proverbial caste ladder, you have the Brahmins, and that's the caste that Rukmini Devi, the reinventor of Bharatanatyam, was from. She was Brahmin.
2: Then there are the Kshatriyas, who are the warrior caste, Vaishyas, who are the farmers, traders, and merchants, and the Shudras, who are the labourers, and they make up about 51% of the total population of India.
4: And anyone outside that hierarchy was basically untouchable. And untouchability was outlawed in the 20th century in India, but the stigma of caste remains because caste wasn't outlawed.
0: So caste is this structure of predefined rankings that you're born into. They're not these discrete ideas that people are aware of but don't talk about or name. Caste is a very defined and labelled hierarchy with four main divisions. And these divisions help maintain this hierarchy, with anyone outside of it being
2: so dirty that they're untouchable. It's probably a good time to say that people who were formerly known as untouchables now self-identify and are collectively referred to as Dalits, which means broken but resilient.
0: So essentially don't call them untouchable anymore. Definitely do not. Dalits. Dalits. Got it.
4: Within these divisions, each of these divisions, there are thousands of castes. All of them are hierarchically arranged, one on top of the other, one below the other, and everyone on top is oppressing everyone right below them.
0: So there's a really structured and rigid hierarchy that is caste. And it impacts every aspect of life. Wow, okay. So where does this hierarchy come from?
4: The caste system is sanctioned in the Hindu scriptures. Like the oldest Hindu scriptures that were written, the Vedas, they sanction the caste system.
2: The Vedas are a body of Hindu texts originating in ancient India and are considered some of the oldest authorities of morality.
4: I mean, they sanctioned the Varna system, which is the divisions I talked about, the Brahmins on top, and then the business class and the warrior class and the shudras or the working class. That was identified and written down over 2000 years ago in Hindu scriptures and Hindus still abide by those scriptures.
0: Wait, wait, wait. So this concept of caste is over thousands
4: of years old?
2: Yeah. And this is why you need to do more South Asian episodes. That's why I have you, right?
4: So it is probably the only religion in the world, as far as I can tell, that sanctions this kind of apartheid and it still is recognized as a religion within the subcontinent and across the world. I mean, I still wonder why it hasn't been dismantled or at least reformed. So yeah, it finds legitimacy. The caste system finds its legitimacy in Hindu scriptures. And so anyone that says or calls themselves Hindu needs to understand that. That either they need to reform or they need to call out their own religion.
0: So caste is really rooted in Hindu scriptures.
2: Yeah, so when Rukmini Devi, a woman from an upper caste background and other people in her milieu learned the art form and started propagating it, guess what happened? Uh, I don't know, what happened? They took things out they didn't like, namely erotic and sensual elements and added things they did like like gods and deities from Hindu mythology.
3: I believe that when when the reinvention happened, what happened was a bunch of people who were Brahmins decided to clean this art form, uh, taking away unwanted elements, which included eroticism, which also included the bodies of women that it was on originally, which included my ancestors. So they decided to clean this art form and they created something new. So this idea that the new Bharatanatyam was not for us, was not for the hereditary women, was established by this. Today has become an exclusively Hindu-themed dance form, uh, something that's used as a propaganda. So, this is why I call Bharatanatyam as a caste-ridden art form. Today, the performing artists of this art form are predominantly upper caste, predominantly Brahmins. The, the performing places are all controlled by Brahmins. It's, it's completely run by the upper caste sections. And if there are non brahmins they are also from the extremely privileged sections of the non brahmin communities. Unless there is uh, exorbitant wealth, uh, one cannot perform this art form.
2: So now, Bharatanatyam is pretty much only performed by Brahmins or people with significant wealth.
0: And because Bharatanatyam was no longer a viable livelihood for Isevalala women, fewer and fewer of them can pursue it because they don't have the same resources as the upper caste.
3: So this is one way that the art has been restricted to the upper caste and the upper classes. This is an elitist performing art form that is kept within the hold of the upper caste and slowly and steadily, women from these, these communities were taken away from this art form. They were marginalized and they were pushed away. And that project succeeded. At least by the 60s and 70s, we had nobody. Uh, uh, you can actually see the clear decla- decline in the number of Arangetrams that happened in the hereditary families.
2: So Arangetrams are effectively like a graduation ceremony, but in recital form. It's a culmination of everything you've learned in your Bharatanatyam training.
3: I come from this kind of omissions and erasures, so I am the remnants of such erasure. And as somebody who comes from erasure, I also embody erasure.
0: So as the Asevalala women are pushed out of this art form, now it's wealthy upper caste
2: people who have access to it and the amount of wealth you have is more often than not based on your caste privilege at least in the south asian context
0: but your caste is completely
2: arbitrary it's an accident of birth based on an occupation your ancestor had eons ago that then fell within a hierarchy set out in old hindu texts
0: so a lot of your life is kind of already decided purely based on the caste you're born into that's a lot to unpack but we've only scratched the surface jay but Tanej, this is a podcast about Asian-Australian experience.
2: South Asian-Australian.
0: South Asian-Australian included, for sure. But how does class and caste play out in Australia?
2: Unsurprisingly, how it plays out in Australia has a lot to do with how it plays out in India. Here's Mudit again.
4: Just 15% of the population is able to access private education, which is probably the only decent quality education in India right now and is able to access jobs where that English is a requirement, then those are going to be the people who are going to have global mobility. If you want to study abroad, if you want to work abroad, you want to do a skilled migration, you need a certain level of English, you need a certain level of being able to talk, you need a certain level of savings, which is also grounded. The idea of savings in India is grounded in the idea of owning property. And property ownership is also defined by caste. Yeah, even if you're taking out a loan to study abroad, you need property to put as collateral.
2: As Mudit highlighted, it's more likely that people with structural advantages and caste privileges have the opportunity to migrate from India or Sri Lanka to Australia more than others. My parents, for example, are Valalars in Sri Lanka, which is an upper caste community. This meant that they had structural advantages that allowed them to migrate to Canada where I grew up at a time when others couldn't.
0: So caste isn't limited to South Asia, It kind of follows wherever South Asian migrants go, since migration itself is more accessible by higher castes. And whilst caste and class overlap, they're definitely not interchangeable.
2: You can be poor and have caste privilege. Conversely, it is possible for a Dalit to become wealthy but still be limited socially of their caste. A rich Dalit may still not be welcome to marry an upper caste partner they will still be barred from becoming priests and will be treated poorly despite their ability to break class boundaries.
0: Are Indian and Sri Lankan castes
2: the same thing? No, they aren't. However, how caste aspirations play out in the diaspora are interrelated. And we'll get to that a bit later. It's also important to acknowledge that there are many caste-oppressed migrant communities who have also migrated. They have found that they can't escape the stigma of their caste, even in the diaspora. Can you
1: introduce yourself? My name is Arjunan Pavindran. I'm a Carnatic vocalist. I'm also, I play the mridangam. I think I'm now aware that caste plays a somewhat unconscious role in my life because I'm privileged. The fact that I live in Australia is probably because of my caste. The fact that my parents were able to move to Australia following the riots in Sri Lanka is probably because of my caste. The fact that I enjoy um, certain educational privileges, uh, again, probably because of that caste. There are a number of other factors there, but certainly when I look at, you know, peoples who have been left behind in Sri Lanka that ha- did not have the facility to migrate to Australia or people who are have taken perilous journeys to come to this country for that better life, not that all of them are from a caste that's different to mine, but from my understandings, many of them have come from those castes.
0: So, how does caste and class intersect in the diaspora when it comes to Bharatanatyam?
2: Here is Nirthiya again.
3: So, when you have to get into the art of Bharatanatyam, this idea of Arangetram and the money that is involved, it's a huge business.
0: So I've actually been to an Iron Gate room. There were at least three costume changes and it was like in a theater with tiered seating. It was big.
2: Oh my God, was she a rich brown girl?
0: I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure she was. She took a week off school beforehand just to get ready and she got her braces taken out specifically for it and then put back in afterwards.
2: The thing is, I've been to a number of Iron Gate rooms as well, and they're elaborate and expensive, huge ordeals. And my experience is not unique in this. Here's Arge talking about one of his earliest memories in Melbourne.
1: When my cousin was performing her Arangetram in Melbourne, it was one of those early Arangetrams uh, that was with live music, the second Arangetram in Melbourne to have had live music. And I was a two-year-old boy, and my mother and father were very nervous about sitting in this grand hall with all the pomp and ceremony and trying to keep a young baby quiet.
2: Pomp and ceremony is an accurate way to phrase what it's become,
3: and it is for the money. And this need to, for many, many of the non-Brahmins who move out of India, is to probably establish a connection with their culture that they've long lost, or they believe that they've lost. And Bharatanatyam is used as a tool to connect with their culture, but unfortunately, this is also seeped in a lot of aspirational Brahminism this idea of um, having an Arangetram, having several costume changes in an Arangetram, this loud display of money and these Brahminic traditions. And uh, we've gone to the extent of having certain uh, Brahmin priests be part of Arangetrams. You know, we we start having this kind of aspirational behavior, aspirational, and that's exactly how the caste hierarchy is meant to work uh, and why it is intact.
0: This sounds like the extravagance in modern-day gender reveal parties.
2: <laughs> absolutely. It's unnecessary, OTT, and apparently now quite dangerous.
0: <laughs> right, but it's like you feel like you have to put on this big show and it then loses the essence of what it's supposed to be about.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And the increasing extravagance of arangetrams in India means that South Asians in Australia also aspire for those styles of arangetrams as a way of cultural connection. This is partly because it's now considered a brahminical art form, so it's kind of aspirational because it's
0: upper caste, which then perpetuates caste dynamics in a direct but also indirect way.
3: And we continue to do these kind of events, and it becomes as though like unless you do an arangetram like this, then you are not a dancer. It. It's it's the first step, but the point being that this could be something that can be done in a small scale. This can be in a temple. This can be in a small space. Uh, unfortunately. Uh, Class and caste play an important role again in this, and you do tend to spend. I mean, you know, bigger the Arangetram, the the bigger the uh, the the dancer is supposed to be. That's the kind of uh, image that is built on an Arangetram.
0: So, why aren't South Asian Australians engaging with the history of the art form?
2: Arch talks about this and why the real history of Bharatanatyam and the Isabelala community may not be told or accurately represented.
1: The understandings of the art form are largely taken, in my view, taken from the time in which these practitioners were engaging with the art form so whether they were learning in the 1960s or 70s and have migrated to Australia and started to teach those art forms here it's the values and the analysis of the art form at that time that seems to be what's propagated here and has been Now, remember, having
0: access to migration is already quite strongly tied to caste. So, the narrative and histories that are told about Bharatanatyam in Australia are more likely those of upper caste people.
1: Now, these are practitioners that have done human service to creating a vibrant and thriving art space for that art form. The, The discourse, however, has always been, I think, dominated by this idea of an unbroken tradition that dates back to the Natya Shastra and that the art form was in some form of degradation but that seems to be the the dominant discourse so that in 19 i think the 20s or 30s Rukmini Devi Arundel together with others such as E. Krishna Ayer and Jiddu Krishnamurti attached to this theosophist movement were instrumental in reviving the art form from that state of degradation there's an element of redemption or saving of the art form I think talking about the Australian perspective, that seems to be the common understanding. To what extent the Australian narrative engages critically in unpacking what that involved, I think is quite scant.
0: So, I'm just saying diasporic South Asians don't usually have a great understanding of the history of Bharatanatyam.
2: Yeah, and more often than not, they credit to Rukmini Devi and her peers. Diasporic practitioners rarely critique the sanitized history.
0: Which I guess could be ignorance, but that in itself is a privilege
2: of being upper caste. If you aren't part of the solution, you're part of the problem.
1: But I think that the the mainstream narrative still exists. Part of that also is because the engagement with uh, Bharatanatyam here, I think serves, or has for a long time served a very different purpose, which is the engagement with a cultural heritage in an otherwise so-called European uh, land. If you focus on the Tamil community as an example, particularly if I was to talk from my personal perspective as a Sri Lankan Tamil, where the Tamil heritage was under attack and at the risk of, you want to refer to it as genocide or some form of ostracization, the migrants that came to this country felt a strong need to cling to that sense of cultural heritage. And whether it's Bharatanatyam or Carnatic music, teaching of Tamil culture and the Tamil language, the Tamil arts, all of these were considered to be instrumental in preserving or recreating that connectivity to cultural heritage here in Australia. And so where that has been given greater prominence, some of the other narratives involved in Bharatanatyam and Carnatic music have not been afforded the same level of importance because they played a secondary role. Right, so when you're in a country like
0: Australia as a diasporic Indian or Sri Lankan, you may view Bharatanatyam more as a way to connect to your culture, but that often means the history isn't the
2: focus. What's funny here is that when Arj talks about Sri Lankan Tamils who use Bharatanatyam as a way to connect to their traditions and culture, they're also forgetting the rich traditions that existed outside of India, Tamil-speaking women who had migrated from India and were dancing in courts and temples in Sri Lanka.
1: I think... It's a disservice to members of the hereditary communities who have been displaced by the effects of the so-called appropriation of the art forms. However, I think in the Australian context, that still feels somewhat removed and therefore the damage feels distanced from the people who practice it here. So I'm not suggesting that that's in any way better or okay or acceptable, but I think that probably is a an important way of understanding the lack of connectivity to that damage and therefore the fact that we don't engage with a sense of direct damage here. But what I often draw the parallel to is mm-hmm. Australia's treatment of its first nations peoples, because Here we are very privileged to sit on the land of an indigenous peoples and we are enjoying the benefits of having appropriated that land from them and have created a new civilization and we as migrants to this country are enjoying the benefits of that. So in Australia as
0: a settler colony, we've started a reconciliation process, even if we're dragging our
2: feet doing it. But when it comes to Bharatanatyam's history? For the most part, South Asians in the diaspora haven't even put their shoes on yet. Their shoes are in fact off, but not for good reasons. Did you say shoes off? a. So, how do we move forward? Here's Mudit.
4: Imagine you write a book where you say that, I'm going to decide how everyone else lives. This is a certain section of the population that's, that nobody can even touch. They will be the ones who will be employed in disposing of the dead and cleaning shit. And they will be the untouched My ancestors wrote this and this is their caste privilege. That is what Brahmins have done. There is no merit in doing this, in writing this. And they also said, okay, half of the population is going to be working class for the rest of their lives. Their descendants will also be working class. They can't access education. If they access education, they have to be violently put down and indigenous people are not supposed to live in the society. They are quote-unquote savages. Brahmins wrote all of this and they practiced it for thousands of years. That is equivalent to the Ku Klux Klan in the US. It's probably even worse. So sort of self-identify as Brahmin is so problematic. So yeah, you are part of the problem if you're not spe- actively speaking out against it. You. If you're not dismantling it, then you are benefiting from it.
0: There's no way around it. The caste system is inherently inequitable. You can't interpret your way out of it.
2: One of the things that Mudit recommends is reading BR and Baker's The Annihilation of Caste. It's a foundational text that was ahead of its time, so much so that it wasn't even approved by the people who were trying to dismantle the caste structures at the time. However, now it's become a central text for Dalit communities fighting for justice. And understanding caste and its effects is definitely the first step in moving forward. The funny thing is, many South Asians are across critical race theory, but are strangely silent on caste. Seeing Bharatanatyam on MTV, that's cultural appropriation. But on the flip side, many are unaware of the fact that the art form itself has been appropriated and continues to disenfranchise the community that it originates from. So we all need to become caste conscious, and caste needs to become a part of our vocabulary when it comes to discussing discrimination. It's that buzzword, intersectionality. Yes, Jay. But when it comes to Bhardhanatyam, Nurtia says that the first step is to acknowledge the problem of caste, erasure, and appropriation, and stop propagating a false history.
3: It's taken five generations for somebody like me to come and speak about this. Isn't it surprising that this was the community that once upon a time performed and held on to this rich tradition. These these were women who were repositories of this art form. But today we hardly have any women dancing from the community. Now, all of these kind of problematic notions need to be uh, acknowledged. Just like in many countries, Indigenous cultures are being acknowledged. Indigenous lands are being acknowledged. Public apologies are given. So these are things that are very important that need to be also thought about, at least in terms of Paratanatyam. It's important that artists strive to be vocal about issues and also acknowledge that this is an appropriated art form.
2: nritya says that some Isai Valala community members have started to dance again, but they're not given the same level of respect and are still actually practicing in the margins. And now, upper caste women even want to dress up as quote-unquote devadasis, in effect claiming the old and new variations of the art form, leaving no space for people in the community.
0: Okay, so this is a lot of information to consume.
2: So what have you actually learned today?
0: Well, this art form that we see a lot of South Asians performing in Australia has a more complex history and is inseparable from caste. When this art form was brought over to Australia, it was brought over with caste dynamics attached, which determines who performs it and how it's performed.
2: So for example, how it was originally performed, it was quite fluid and flowy, and now the focus has shifted to sharp angles and clean lines.
0: And the originators of this art form are often forgotten by diasporic South Asians, behind the veil of connecting with one's cultural roots.
2: Which, like, it isn't a bad thing to connect with your cultural roots, but it's important to know how this culture came to be, and who has been erased in the process.
0: And not only does caste have a significant influence on who does what in India, but it also has a significant influence on who does what in Australia.
2: You can't simply be an ally, you have to be anti-caste.
0: Like anti-racist, but for caste. And as there are thousands of castes, there are so many communities within South Asia, and the term South Asia has its uses as a contrast to say white people, but like any overarching group term, it has its limits. It's always going to exclude certain communities and cultures that aren't the dominant ones.
2: So, how can we practice Bharatanatyam in Australia in a way that does recognize its roots?
3: So, I would do pieces that talk about the history of this art form. Where does this art form come from? I, I like to do pieces from the temple traditions and the court traditions, and I mention who it was composed by. Who are these people? Who dance this piece? So there is humongous history in families like mine, and I wish to put forth that when I dance. And I also wish to talk about those women who were not talked about. This kind of acknowledgement can be very important. I I do notice that some of these dancers today are reading out acknowledgements. They talk about how this was uh, the art form from hereditary families and how they were socially and politically challenged at the end of the 18th century. And, you know, we are thankful to this community for having passed on this beautiful tradition to us.
1: So recently I did a performance where I wanted to express acknowledge uh, at the outset the traditional practitioners of the art forms that we today call Bharatanatyam and Carnatic music and that we pay our respects to those practitioners who have come from before, from members of the community and those who continue to exist today. I think that kind of acknowledgement avoids the sense of erasure. And I think by paying that kind of respect, some may disregard that as being lip service, but it means that we are constantly and expressly acknowledging that contribution. And that will help to change the perspectives of those who live in Australia as they constantly hear those words affirmed at the beginning of every performance of Bharatanatyam or Carnatic music. Part of that will naturally spawn a greater awareness and interest in what this Ise Valala community's contribution to the art form was. And that will hopefully garner, for example, more performance opportunities or speaking opportunities, the same way in which we would actively, as part of art strategy here in Australia, we actively choose to engage with First Nations artists so that we continue to recognise them, position them at the forefront of arts practice here in Australia.
3: It's important that as individual artists, we all find our ways to come to terms with what's happened. And every one of us who dances it without acknowledgement of the problem is a problematic dancer. To make it less problematic, it's important to engage in all of this, to engage in the history and to engage in the recurring problems of caste exclusion.
2: This episode was written and produced by me, Tanish Dele, Jay's best friend, rock, and savior. <laughs> and with help from me, Jay Ui, who also did the editing and mixing. Special thanks to Priyanka, Arjun and Pravindran, Pele, Pillay, Nithya Nagarajan, Modit Vyas, Equality Labs, and B.R. And Baker for the annihilation of cast.
0: And thanks to Arj and Nurtia for giving us some music to use, as well as Avik Chari and Ali Cheng for the episode artwork and special thanks to you Tanesh, for
2: putting the episode together and for being your best friend yes that too thank you we'd love to hear about your experience of cast in Australia and how it impacts your practice of Barlanatium leave a comment on Facebook or our Instagram at shoesoffau and if
0: you like shoesoff please follow or subscribe we're on Spotify Apple Podcasts Google Podcasts or wherever you get your pods Tanesh, where can people find you?
2: You can find me on Instagram at (laughs) TamilDaddy. Strange but political.
0: (laughs) And if you know anyone who practices Bharatanatyam, please share this episode with them. Peace out, A-Town. Peace out.
3: Yo. Yo.
2: There's a couple of reasons I want to do this episode um, or this particular topic. One, I feel that the conversation around caste, specifically in Australia, is quite limited. And people need to become much more aware of their caste privilege and what has allowed them to, for the most part, live a pretty privileged existence here. The other thing is that I see a lot of my peers in the South Asian community, and in particular the Tamil community, Practice better without really giving credit or acknowledging its uh, complex history. And after seeing Nurthea Pillay's work in trying to have that history acknowledged and the injustices that were a part of that process, I really wanted to communicate that story through caste.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic because often as minorities, we kind of feel like the oppressed. Or I mean, for example, even say your parents are not, wealthy people, but they come from an upper caste sort of background. And so I can sort of understand why the South Asians in the diaspora don't really feel like they need to engage with this.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and the thing is, like, I think even for me, when it comes to acknowledging my caste, I actually didn't know about it until a few years ago. And I think for most people who are from caste privileged backgrounds, they only become aware of... Caste and how it operates when it comes to dating and when they're looking for partners or their families are setting them up to be married. That's when caste conversations commence. And that's because we only become aware of it at that point. People who are caste oppressed have been experiencing this their entire lives. And I think it's a huge disservice for us to continue operating uh, with this immense privilege and not do anything to actively dismantle these oppressive structures.
0: I kind of like topics that flip the dynamic and make us examine our own sort of privilege and how we oppress others.
2: That's absolutely one of the main takeaways here, because this is not the only uh, example of this flipping of the script. I'm very, very confident this is occurring all throughout the diaspora in various Asian communities. This is just one particular example of it. And... It's quite fascinating to see a lot of people in the Bharatanatyam and upper upper caste communities play the, oh, I'm being disadvantaged card here in Australia and Canada and America, but be completely blind to how they're actually perpetuating really problematic dynamics and erasures back home by the art art and things that they're practicing here in the diaspora. Why how how did you find this episode and this discussion?
0: I I found it very it was actually very interesting to me. There were a lot of terms to get my head around to start with, but once I sort of I guess understood that, it became quite fascinating to see how I guess deeply rooted and still kind of prevalent caste is in South Asia as a as a monolith.
2: Yeah. <laughs> And what's funny is also the caste dialogue is now moving beyond India. Like, I think the first thing I'd like to acknowledge is the fact that there are various caste frameworks all throughout Asia. And I think in this episode, we touch upon the fact that Sri Lanka also has a caste system that's different from the one in India. And just recently, an author, Isabel Wilkerson, has written a book called Caste that actually applies the Indian caste framework onto American history. And she uses um, Baker's caste framework to assess that. It's actually a very, very popular book at the moment. So um, I highly recommend anyone who's interested in these topics to actually pick that book up. Link in our, Link in the show notes.